house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. A game changer. She's your soulmate, right? Go get her back. Wow, how old are you? <laughs> I'm in love with her, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know when you and I stopped being us. You know, when I told you that I had to work late, I really went to see the new Twilight movie by myself, and it was so bad. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast whose lengthy trip to India was powered by lustful glances at Jared Leto. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, entertainment writer Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, everyone. Chris... We've got another movie this week that walks the line. It is not walk the line. Walk the line successfully cashed in. On Oscar, Oscar winner walk, walk the line. Yeah. Um, but this movie this week walks the line regarding how much Oscar buzz it really had. I have a feeling I'm going to get some of those tweets from people when we say that this is our movie. And people will be like, that had Oscar buzz? First of all, everybody. Indeed it did. Just trust me. Trust, trust Chris and I that we know what we're talking about. But... I distinctly also remember the FYC ad campaign for this movie. Oh, of course. This had very specific Oscar buzz in that it wasn't a it wasn't expected to sort of cash in on all categories and I don't think it was ever a best picture hopeful. But it, but it stuck around in the conversation for a long time. And we'll get into original screenplay, but I remember that being like I mean, obviously, we'll talk about Ryan Gosling, and it's like, this is a very Oscar-friendly cast, but original screenplay was the one that it was like, I don't know, maybe, like, it kind of lurked around in the conversation. And also, it was the kind of summer hit that tends to lead to questions of whether it could sneak into any Oscar categories. Basically, if you are a summer mainstream comedic hit that features big movie stars... Like, that's enough. You know what I mean? Like, that is, someone's going to start with that conversation. So, the movie we are talking about this week is the 2011 film Crazy Stupid Love, directed by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa, written by Dan Fogelman, who we'll get into, starring Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, Julianne Moore, the great Annalie Tipton from America's Next Top Model fame, and more. Uh, Marissa Tomei premiered... July 29th, 2011. Yeah. What do you, yeah. what's your like what's your first when I say crazy stupid love, what's the first thing that sort of like jumps into your head about it? Um Julianne Moore, obviously, as a major Julianne Moore fan and that's probably like all I needed to put my butt in the seat even sure. though like uh I will say this is a movie of diminishing returns for me. Like I loved it the first time I saw it and then I demanded that my family go see it with me again so that they could experience this like delightful like romantic comedy when we don't make those anymore. God, even in 2011 it felt like we weren't making romantic comedies anymore. Oh, we weren't. 
Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, so I took you guys to see this kind of creepy movie that's a little <laughs> weird yeah. and gross. Yeah. And then every time that I've seen it after, I'm like, okay, this is maybe unacceptable in some of these parts. Um, this movie like, had me and lost me, like, the first time I watched it. Where, like, it had me in the first, you know, it had me from the trailers and from the concept, and I was so on board. And then just a sliding scale downward as the movie went along. And also I have to imagine if you're going into this movie as a Julianne Moore fan, primarily, yeah, this movie's Bummer. really got to piss you off. Cause this does not do well by her character at all. The only character, the only main character it does worse by is Emma Stone. Yeah. In my and opinion. like even gives her like a non twist towards the end. I mean, I do think that this movie is like whiplash inducing and how quickly it loses you and gets you back. And like, for the most part gets you back merely just by like the comedic goodwill of this movie. Like this is a movie that functions for you to like it, even though everything on the page of this movie is actively working against you liking this movie. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about what happens to the Emma Stone character, but before I do, just to get everybody sort of caught up in case they haven't watched it before we've started, why don't you give us a 60 second plot rundown just to catch us all up. Give me one yeah, second. Quite the task, because there yeah. is a lot happening There's in this. There's a lot of plot in this. So movie. whenever you are ready, I will start the timer. I am ready. All right, Chris, your 60-second plot window is about to commence now. Okay, so um, uh, Steve Carell stars as basically like a sad man. He's named Cal. His wife, Emily, who's played by Julianne Moore, as mentioned, she announces at the beginning of the movie that she wants a divorce after sleeping with a man named uh, David Linhagen. Um, Kevin Bacon plays David Linhagen, which you don't really find out until later. But like any person should be allowed to bang Kevin Bacon for free without repercussions if they want to. And this uh, basically sends Cal into a spiral, um, finding out that his wife... Seconds. Ah, ah, okay, so then um, Ryan Gosling kind of comes into the picture as, like, his, like, macho guru. He's also, like, an Abercrombie shopping bag come to life, and he helps Cal, like, learn his Lothario ways. Uh, but then even, like, Ryan Gosling, like, is learning that love is more important than just, like, meaningless Ten sex. Seconds. Because he, ah, uh, he meets Emma Stone, who is surprisingly their daughter. Um, and then there's, like, Marissa Tomei being just, like, a sad woman. Their son is, like, a pervert to their babysitter who wants to sleep with Steve Carell. Time out. I knew you were in the weeds when you only got to... Steve Carell getting set off on his sad journey at the thirty at the thirty second mark. It's like basically you got to him tumbling out of the car. I had forgotten that they had done that bit before Lady Bird did that bit. Yeah, but that all happens in the first ten minutes of the movie. So you were Lady you were Bird. running up to Good movie you were running where up someone launches out of a car in the first scene. What's that? Crazy stupid love. Not yeah. a good movie where someone launches out of a car in the first scene. Yeah, for real. So the Emma Stone character, I think it's I think it's sort of, you know, endemic to what you what we heard when you went through the plot, which is that she doesn't enter into the story for a while. When she does, it feels like she's on her own island. She's got her own little story. Yeah. She's, you know, dating Josh Groban. She's waiting for him to propose. She and her girlfriend, played by Liza Lapira, who I love and who should She's like fantastic. be much more known and much more prominent. Like she should have a sitcom now. 
essentially. Top three performances of this movie. Love her. Love her in this movie. They're out sort of commiserating, and Ryan Gosling starts to hit on Emma Stone. One of the things I appreciated about Ryan Gosling hitting on Emma Stone was that he acknowledged that her friend was also very attractive because I was like, yeah, good. Like, don't neg the friend, at least. Like, he's already, he's doing enough. um, Who was that guy who had the show on VH1 briefly? The uh, Brett Michaels. No, but he sort of dressed like Brett Michaels, right? Where he was the pickup artist. There's like Gosling's doing enough of this pickup artist bullshit without, you know, negging wonderful Liza LaPera. So anyway... Picks up Emma Stone, and it feels like then every time we check back in on Emma Stone, it's just sort of like, oh, right, she's going through her own. And you assume that she's there for the Gosling storyline, and Gosling is the bridge that will bridge the two things together. And then you get that twist about four-fifths of the way through the movie, where Like, twist in finger quotes, too, because it's like, it's really not all that surprising or necessary that they have this other daughter, which we should also mention, her name is Hannah, but, like, the whole time, Steve Carell and Julianne Moore are referring to someone named Nana, who we think is, like, a grandmother or a mother or something. Yeah. But it turns out that Hannah, like, as a child, couldn't pronounce H's, and it's stuck on, and it's, like, this weird plot point for the whole movie. I feel like Uh, the movie does a decent job of back burnering that other daughter character because i do remember being fairly surprised when it happened just because you never it never felt like the kind of movie where a twist was waiting for you and then so it does happen and then immediately that character is fully dropped and we we see her one more time in kind of an ancillary scene and then she's there during the graduation which we'll get to that whole yeah to just be like hey man to her brother right but like it's but like as a protagonist she's she's done what is yeah what do we know what do we know of her Her, what is her her career doing what is her anything yeah. Her only function in the movie is to play like audience surrogate to like Ryan Gosling's body, which fair um, fair enough is an important function. We don't need a we don't need a surrogate for that. We're already yelling in the theater. It's fine. Um, and then she basically just kind of functions to pit Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell against each other for kind of no reason. Not not even actively. Just like the fact of her. Yeah. does this like it gives she doesn't even impetus. get to have agency she doesn't get to make decisions she doesn't get to have an opinion there she barely speaks in that yeah. scene when everybody finds out she doesn't have any conversation we never see her have a conversation with either her father or her mother one-on-one really everything is through gosling and like i get that gosling and Carell are the central characters but really like this movie keeps fainting towards the idea that all four of the leads have a story to tell. And even that, like, Annalie Tipton and The Sun also have stories to tell. This is where you can start to feel like, oh, this is a Dan Fogelman joint where, like, all these disparate characters, and, and you know, in this one they're not so disparate because it's a family and, and you know, Annalie Tipton's parents are friends of Carell and Julianne Moore and whatever. So, like, but that all these different perspectives and then they'll end up, like, converging and being messy with each other. But, like, it's so... I feel like it's depending so much on the fact of these connections that they it doesn't ever bother doing the work of fleshing anything out beyond Where a couple it, it, relationships. Well, and, like, there might have been, like, more connective threads to, like, 
latch on to or to develop if they had just said from the beginning who everybody yeah is like what everybody's connection is yeah drop that bomb on the audience halfway through the movie when you get like emma stone shows up to like have a talk with her mom or something like yeah. that do you know what i mean or like to could... like tell her dad to get his shit together right and you can still wait for you know Corell to find out but ultimately just dropping that bomb on the audience isn't worth it for dropping emma stone as a character yeah you know I don't know. Especially because she's the best parts of the movie. She and Gosling together, which only really happens for like three scenes, are the best parts of the movie. That scene of them in bed together where they're just sort of like riffing off of each other and she's making fun of him for his home shopping purchases. She does the decaf coffee commercial. She does the decaf coffee commercial. She does the Lauren Bacall thing, which is like hand to my heart. I love it so much. But, like, that is the best part of the movie, and their vibe together is the best part of the movie. You can absolutely see why they went and, like, cast them in two further movies, only one of which... And they are definitely not done making movies together, too. They shouldn't be. They should keep making movies forever. They're wonderful opposite each other. But, like, that's where the movie comes alive, and I think the movie is a little bit more in love with Carell and Gosling together, which, like, that is a dynamic, too. It's just one that I'm not super interested in, because it's, again, very much macho pickup artist bullshit where we're supposed to it wants to have its cake and eat it too with the gosling character right where we're not we're supposed to be able to be like that's not the way a person should be i hope some woman tames him you know and And i also hope that he tames me well that's the thing but also i want to i want to keep watching him you know pull this act on women and smack Carell around and try and like insult him for not being manly enough or modern enough or whatever and so it's this very i thought of the wolf of wall street a lot which is another movie i felt like tried to have its cake and eat it too in terms of we are going to trust that the audience knows that we disapprove of you know this behavior that ultimately this is this is a bad guy, but man, we're going to let everybody wallow in this bad behavior for as long as we possibly can. And I never love that. That's never a thing that, you know, appeals to me. Yeah. But like Gosling and Emma Stone together are great. And it just, and honestly, Carell and Julianne Moore together are great. We just don't get enough of either dynamic. We get more of Carell and Julianne Moore together, but. I mean, I would argue that like the cast is one of the reasons that people do kind of love this movie because this movie got like a second life like it did well and then it kind of died and went away for a little bit and now it's like a huge cable staple and people love this movie now yeah and i think that the cast is a huge part of it because even down to like john carroll lynch everybody's super enjoyable in this movie doing nonsensical things yeah and like the cast also pacifies like you were talking about how it's this cliche like macho storyline between the two leads and it's also like really all of these threads are so kind of generic rom-com that it's like you just throw them all together and then you make everybody do like ridiculous things that no human being would do yeah and like that's kind of the soup of this movie like you kind of are it's engineered to like make you forget how generic it is my thing with this movie is that all of the men in this movie behave like complete sociopaths yes throughout the entire film every and single all one of, of the them. women are like offensively like dumb not dumb but like 
like led around by led around by their infatuations with these men to some degree or another. Julianne Moore. Well, Emma Stone is the exception that proves the rule, right? Emma Stone is an independent lady and do not try to play her like, you know, she's Jenna Maroney song come to life. But like even she has the thing where she's just like waiting for Josh Groban to propose to her. And like, thank God once again for, you know, Liza LaPera just being like trying to like crack some sense into her. Like, you know, you're so much better than this guy. Right. And it's like, yes, she is. Like, it's insane that she's waiting for this dork to, you know, propose to her. But that's what all the women like Julianne Moore comes closest to try and you know, self-actualization. She, you know, tries to talk to her husband about, I know these people have character names and people have gotten on my case for not using the character names, but whatever. In a movie like this, we're watching movie stars. I'm sorry. It's just how it is. Right. So, but she tries to When they just lob off a few letters in Steve Carell's last name and it's like, you're going to be Cal. Yeah. Like, we're just going to call you Steve Carell. But, like, Julianne Moore's trying to tell him about, like, I think I'm having a midlife crisis. I haven't been happy for a while. I went to Twilight and I watched it by myself and it was so bad. Like, that's my favorite line of hers. Julianne Moore is also in top three performances of this movie because that yeah. Twilight line is incredible. And it's I think that was line. in the trailer, right? Yes, Again, myself, Chris File, major proponent of when Julianne Moore gets to be funny because she's funny. But so she she keeps, I think, in those early scenes, she's like she's begging for him to like respond to her. Cause she, she clearly wants to work through this with him or wants him to want to work through this with her, but he, you know, fully disconnects and he disengages and he falls out of the car and he moves out of the house like that night and doesn't want to have an argument about it and doesn't want to, and wants to sort of like sad sack around about it. So then she's left to kind of begin her life again. And that's not necessarily maybe something she wants either. So, that's halfway interesting. But the otherwise, we get Annalie Tipton, who is infatuated with Steve Carell, and Marissa Tomei, who also ends up infatuated with Steve Carell. Like, I get we that gotta part talk of, about Marissa Tomei. I get that part of the movie, uh, part of the comedy, is that Gosling gets Carell to a point where a woman would be this head over heels for him. Otherwise, the only other person who's that at head over heels for him is this dumb teen who's having a weird, like, daddy fixation or something. But, like, Marissa Tomei gets done bad in this movie in a way that is worse than how she gets done bad in What Women Want, and I never thought that would be possible. And they are, like, the same character. And the thing, like, you have to credit Marissa Tomei because she, like really goes for it and is trying to make this funny but like when you are in this movie that confuses ridiculousness for comedy like that character i think is outright offensive what is the comedic sensibility in this movie this is maybe we should let's 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 finish this sense because then i want to think we should back up and talk about the directors and the writer because i feel like that's that's a big part of why this movie is the way it is i want to walk up to this movie and just be like why are you the way you are and i think You know, that will. But, like, give Marissa's side of the story here. Okay, so Marissa Tomei is, like, a one-night stand with Steve Carell, and he tries to play the game that Gosling set him up to do and is, like, coached him to do, and she's not falling for it. And then he, like, breaks down and just, like, starts being real with her, and she connects with that and is, like, 
really turned on by it and then becomes like this lioness woman who wants to jump his bones and then we never see her again and we assume he never calls her which she makes very clear when he does see her again at his son's parent-teacher conference with Julianne Moore there she is his eighth grade teacher and like then she goes into this whole tirade while she's at work, mind yeah, you, yeah. in front of, like, a slew of parents out in, like, the middle school campus. And it's just so offensive. Like, this portraiture of this woman who is, like, driven crazy by the man who doesn't call by her. By Steve Carell, of all people. Like, ugh. And it's just, like... As soon as she's horny, she's like, you know, ta- the Tasmanian devil in his house. Like, the poster <laughs> yes. is, yes. like, the fake, like, the graduate where it's, like, he's seen between Marissa Tomei's legs. Yeah. Uh, it's so bad. It, it's bad. Like, I get, like, you cut Marissa, like, we want Marissa Tomei to have jobs. And, like, we want Marissa Tomei to be, like, trying things, like, being funny. And... Well, I mean, I guess not trying things. She won an Oscar for being funny. Yeah. Um, but it's just like you cut Marissa Tomei out of this movie and it solves all. I mean, it at least makes this movie less gauche. It makes the movie not two hours long, which yeah. it doesn't need to be. I don't understand why Marissa Tomei keeps getting cast as this woman in the movie and not the main woman in the movie. Uh-huh. Like, we never get to see that. And I don't understand... I'm sure there's some, you know, file in some Hollywood producer's computer that tracks, you know, the money-making potential of whatever and, you know, whatever lead roles she had didn't do well enough. But, like, that, at some point, she got pigeonholed into playing, you know, the secondary woman. woman in comedies and also kind of the secondary woman in certain dramas the fact that i look at her oscar nominations for like the wrestler and in the bedroom not that those aren't great performances and i actually think the role in in the bedroom is pretty interesting and pretty good but it's you know these still aren't leads and it's like this is a woman that could really you know nail something and she's such a good actress and i think she's so dependable I I know a lot of people bristle at the work in The Wrestler, and I think it's partly just because she's, like, playing a stripper, and they, like, don't think that there's much there. But I do think performance-wise, yeah. I think Mickey Rourke does kind of owe a lot to what she is, like, giving him. Like, it's a true supporting performance yes. in yes. that, like, she's pushing him in a certain direction in their scenes together That's pays off in his work as well. Yeah. So I want to talk, so this movie comes from a script, a Blacklist script, actually. And I feel like it's interesting that we talk about Blacklist scripts on this podcast as much as we do, because it's a nice reminder that, like, just because something is a Blacklist script script does not mean that it's automatically guaranteed for success. And those things get adapted poorly, or they're, you know, just because they're so buzzy from being on the Blacklist doesn't actually mean that they're good i don't know sometimes blacklist scripts to change hands a lot yeah um 
where it's like you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen of how like this movie is going to like deliver its take like we'll eventually talk about collateral beauty but collateral beauty was on a blacklist and like it changed hands and like that's a movie that looks like it and this kind of feels like that too like especially because it's written by dan fogelman i wouldn't be surprised if this didn't originate as a comedy Oh, I'm sure it did. Because, okay, so you look at his early filmography. He was a writer for a lot of the Disney, Pixar. He was on Cars and Cars 2 on both of those writing teams. He's got screenplay credits on Bolt, on Tangled. And in the midst of all of that, he does the screenplay for Fred Claus, which is the essentially, you know, the follow-up to Wedding Crashers, which was such a huge success. And it's like, same director, Vince Vaughn, together again. That movie has an offensively star-studded cast for Fred Claus, where it's like Vince Vaughn, Paul Giamatti, Miranda Richardson, Kathy Bates, Rachel Weisz, Ludacris is in that, uh, Elizabeth Banks is in that, Kevin Spacey's in that. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's also offensive that we didn't get Paul Giamatti as Santa in a better movie. In a better movie. Well, make I'm, that happen again. Miranda Richardson as Mrs. Claus in a better movie. Like all of that. So then, after Cars Two comes, Crazy Stupid Love and Cars Two are the same year. So then he follows up Crazy Stupid Love, which is a pretty big success, eighty-four million dollars domestic, is you know really well liked. Follows that up with The Guilt Trip, starring Seth Rogen. Barbara Streisand, directed by Anne Fletcher, another name who comes up a lot on this podcast in ancillary conversations. That is a movie I think should have been better than what it was. I think that's a movie where the concept is a lot better than what it ends up being. Yeah. Which actually I think Fred Claus is also that case, where like the idea is better. He also writes Last Vegas, which, you know, the the didn't bet you didn't know it was a John Turtletaub movie. 2013 starring De Niro and Michael Douglas and Morgan Freeman and who's the fourth? Isn't it Goldblum? No. Is it Goldblum? It's, it's Kevin Klein. Like it's Kevin cool. Klein. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not too far off from Goldblum, actually. Kevin Klein and Jeff Goldblum have similar vibes, more similar than what you'd think. And then he also writes Danny Collins, which is his directorial debut, I'm pretty sure. Also had Oscar buzz. Also had Oscar buzz, yeah, for Pacino. Yeah, more, way more than you would have thought. But, of course, the reason we know him now, I mean, like, he creates Gallivant, which is a, you know, niche little hit. But he's the This Is Us guy, right? He creates and, and is the writer for This Is Us. It becomes this huge phenomenon. And so all of a sudden, all of these kind of little quirks become the Dan Fogelman style, which is highly sentimental um interconnected narratives big sort of like sprawling family casts that are intergenerational and whose story is kind of like and if you if you know this all comes to a head with life itself the ridiculous 2018 movie that if you haven't had the displeasure honestly see it I, I do believe it will be available on Amazon Prime the week that this episode drops. You are on the ball. so In which I will probably catch up to this disaster of a movie. Yes. Oh, you you didn't see it? No, I still haven't seen it. Oh, Chris. Um, 
Yeah. I, I you're going to be so mad at it. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're going to be so mad at it. It's going to be very funny. I want to get those From what I texts. gather, I'm going to be mad at it because I'm going to want to be, like, laughing at how stupid it is, which I am prone to do and love to do. And, like, the movie is not going to let me do that from what I not for long enough stretches it won't. There are still some moments. It'll have some moments for sure. But I think once he kind of comes into his own and his style comes into his own, it's interesting reading the reviews. Even the positive reviews had similar complaints, which is which were at the time attributed to the directors, were attributed to Fakara and Requa as their quirks because they also had irrecognizable style but now if you look at the complaints about like the style of the comedy the right turns into sentimentalism even though for even for things that shouldn't be sentimental like the fact that this kid the son and his frankly unsettling fixation on this babysitter which we'll get into is played as a heartwarming moment for him to bond with like his dad is real weird and but like and that all ends up making a lot of sense if you watch enough dan fogelman stuff but at the time fakara and requa were the they were the known quantities they were the more known quantities they were the ones who had made they had just made um i love you philip morris i love you philip morris in 2009 which a lot of people liked. I was not among them. What did you how where'd you come down on that one? Still haven't seen it. <laughs> really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've not I've never seen it. Um I was definitely kind of put off by it when it was first like lingering around. Um and like even like the queer voices that I would normally trust that <laughs> were telling me that it wasn't as offensive as I thought it would be weren't convincing enough, so I still haven't caught up to it. But it I mean like it definitely I don't think it's offensive. I don't think that's how what I came away from it from. This is the one where like Jim Carrey plays a con man who um falls in love with Ewan McGregor and then ends up like in jail. In jail and like doing crimes all for the love of this guy. And like I don't think I ever found it offensive, although the fact that it was made by essentially all straight people is never going to be my favorite thing. But um, there's just something... like the mishmash tone of it. The tone of it like never worked for the me. The comedy yeah. never worked for me. Carrie and McGregor are never my favorite performers anyway. So like watching them together, there was always, there was never a sense, and maybe this is where a little bit of offense comes in, but there was never a sense from Carrie that, He's such an artificial guy anyway, even when he's playing dramatic roles. Like, even in The Truman Show and Man on the Moon and Eternal Sunshine, which are, like, his big dramatic roles. Eternal Sunshine is the most realistic he ever is, right? But, like, there's always some degree of artifice with him. And McGregor is the exact same way. And I don't think anybody really ever talks about that because people tend to really like you and McGregor as a dramatic actor. But I always feel like there is such a sheen of phoniness on him. Always. And a lot of times it works for the roles that he plays. It worked in Christopher That's Robin. when he's good. I was going to say that. It's like what, the performances I love you and McGregor for, like there has to be kind of that like veneer of performance. Moulin right? Rouge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Velvet Goldmine. Right. But so I never, ever, ever bought that relationship in that movie. And even though there is a heightened tone to the comedy, I still think you have to buy that relationship in order to buy that movie. And I never did. But anyway, that was a decently popular movie. And you can see why they then got the go ahead to get, you know, more star studded movies like Crazy Stupid Love. Uh, and then their f- movies after this movie, it takes them four years to get back to a theatrical feature, which is interesting because Crazy Stupid Love, again, was a hit. They get the Will Smith, Margot Robbie movie Focus, which I've never seen, and then Bombed. follow that up with Tina Fey in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, another movie that I think is a better idea than what ended up happening. And another tonal mess. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely and utterly. And it wouldn't surprise me if Focus is the same way, because I feel like that's just, that's their vibe to me. I mean, I to bring it back to, like, kind of the plot, like, I think there's a version of this movie that just focuses on, like, the family coping with divorce. Like, you mentioned Emma Stone, like, we don't ever, like, get her point of view on anything. Like, I would be super interested to see a romantic comedy where a grown child of divorcing parents is like dealing with all of like the you know helping their parents or like dealing with their own emotions like that's I think what works best in this movie and what makes it interesting and makes it really watchable because I mean like we harp on Dan Fogelman for like these aggressively unearned emotional tactics yeah and I do think and maybe it comes down to like Julianne Moore and Steve Carell being good performers like when you see them trying to reconnect and like deal with their failed marriage together, it does like get me. And like, I do think the movie is successful on those terms. Like what parts, especially like, what are the moments in this movie that really get to you? Um, I think the scene where before they launch into the like dreadful parent teacher conference where they're waiting to meet with Marissa Tomei is really good. Um, Like it's, creepy and sociopathic but the scene where he's like in the yard and like yeah, she calls on the him phone. yeah i yeah. think that's a good scene i think like right it's a that. good scene and it's sweet but like steve carell what are you doing um of course but i think the whole movie is steve carell what are you doing <laughs> like right that could be the you know the title of the movie could be cal wyd like it's just <laughs> you know it'd be as okay can we take a pause to mention the grammar in the title of this movie and how much it pisses me off. Crazy comma stupid comma love yes. period. Yes. First of all, shouldn't be a comma after stupid. If you're if you are describing love as both crazy and stupid, you don't put a comma before the noun. Putting a period at the end of a phrase in a movie title is showy and obnoxious. And the only way that the unless the, the, your adaptation. Well, adaptation is showy and obnoxious purposefully and, like, in a, in a good way. So, yes, unless you're adaptation. Um, I don't know. It drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. That second comma drives me insane. I think it's just a stupid title. And it also, like, tells you exactly what you are about to watch, though, in a way, because everyone is stupid in this movie. And crazy. And crazy. Yeah. And, like, in love with someone. I don't so, know. So, let's talk about Robbie, the son who is too old to be pulling the bullshit that he's pulling. Jesus H. Christ. Like, and I get that I just, part of like, it is that, like, he's, you know, at that horrible hormonal age where, like, 
boys are awful. But the fact that like this behavior is indulged, like even when it comes to light with, you know, at the graduation that the parents aren't like, hey, we need to maybe have a talk about you respecting women's consent and things like that. Okay, so right from the outset of this movie, this is the, you know, sort of a cliche, the kid who has the crush on the babysitter. She's only, what what did they say, four years older than him? Yeah. Four years older than him, but of course at that age it's an incredibly crucial four years. She, uh, the, what is Annalie Tipton's character's name? I was going to make an America's Next Top Model reference, and I don't have one. Her name, of course, (laughs) because she is a white teenager in this movie, her name is Jessica. Of course. So Jessica is indulgent of this almost beyond the point where she needs to be at the beginning, right? Where she's, she's, you know, she puts up with it. He just, because she walks in on him, you know, in his bedroom jerking off and it's an awkward moment for everybody. And then he follows that up with making a point of telling her that he thinks of her whenever he jerks off in his awful little like early pubescent, you know, way. But like the movie plays it off as this like awkward, but adorable kind of like funny joke. And And then naive. Right. And then he just fully, continues to pursue her in a way that is increasingly like she tells him to stop this and he does not stop this and they go to the least surprising thing that could have happened would be for like him to like leave a dead animal on her porch that's how creepy this kid gets and again whenever he has this talk because he talks to his dad about it in the abstract he doesn't know that jessica has the crush on his dad she doesn't know, or uh, Carell doesn't know that the girl he has a crush on is the babysitter. So, like, it's this almost, like, farcical, whatever, like, comedy of errors. Nobody knows what everybody else is doing. But Just tell her how you feel, it's man. Played, it's played very adorably. The kid is, at all times, told to keep pursuing this girl who is not interested in him, which is a thing we need to stop telling boys is cute or funny or appropriate or something that should be rewarded it is not a mark of you know forthrightness or you know your love your love isn't better because you refuse to take no for an answer your love is creepy and it is not love at all but like to the once we get to the point where he like puts her on blast at the graduation which like this is her school too like she's gonna get made fun of for this like this is going to at the very least be a pain in her ass as she tries to navigate school. And like, you know, not like 17 year old girls have an easy time navigating school anyway. Like she's got her own shit certainly to deal with. And like, this is even beside the fact that she's decided she's in love with Steve Carell's character. But like at every turn he is encouraged. And then the fact that the movie ends with her handing him the topless photo she took to entice Carell is fucking gross when it it's, is written by a man and directed by two other men to have thank you. your teen girl character encourage this and be a party to it and to oh, not it's just so like gross not just like heterosexual men but like men in their like 50s or yeah. 40 late 40s when this movie came out icky gross nasty and like i don't know like I mean, maybe, like, don't shame people, but, like, don't, like, I don't, I'm not here for this, like, 
teenagers jerking off is charming like type of mentality <laughs> in this movie like it is a fact of life it is a thing that happened we can have good humor about it but we don't to make it to make cutesy, it cute yeah also the more that especially I... in this movie like what what does this bring to this movie especially when it's like the most like frank sexual conversations even if they're gross are about children in this movie yes also, I don't understand. Nothing. Man. The more I talk about this storyline, the more it feels insane that it's the same movie where Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling have their like fun, flirty banter. Like it's actually charming. Actually charming. Actually fun. Like Ryan Gosling, we haven't gotten into him, which he's, he's like he's kind of the focal point of the Oscar buzz of this movie. Right? Was like the he 2011 got the best of part Ryan of the Gosling. reviews for this movie. For but sure. he's he's the star of the movie. He's the one who walks into this movie totally steals every scene he his career got such a boost from not only how good he is in this movie but also how good he looks in this movie and also like that this movie was like sandwiched between a lot more serious like right some might say pretentious roles sure so let's talk this is a about big year for him. Let's talk about Gosling. So coming into this year, it's actually very interesting because he gets the Oscar nomination in 06 for Half Nelson, then appears in two movies in 2007, almost gets the follow up the next year. He's he comes really close to getting nominated for Lars and the Real Girl because that 2007 Best Actor year, Tommy Lee Jones ends up coming out of nowhere and grabbing that fifth slot for In the Valley of Ella. But before that, it was kind of Gosling and Emil Hirsch sort of battling it out for the fifth slot. Emil Hirsch would have been for um, Into the Wild. Because mm-hmm. they had both gotten a bunch of precursors, and Gosling especially seemed, like, good to go. And the fact that, like, even he seemed even a, a more solid bet than Vigo for Eastern Promises. I feel like yeah. the fact that both of... The younger actors, Gosling and Hirsch, got leapfrogged by Vigo and Tommy Lee Jones was sort of an interesting triumph of the olds over the youngs. But Which I think when you have like kind of a wide open, especially leading actor race, when you have like a lot of people in the mix who are probably on the same level, like yeah. that's when you see things like bias against younger actors and then he... really come into play. And then he goes away for three years, which is not a thing I ever really heard explained. And I don't know if you have any insight on that either. I do not. So I do think all good things, if I remember correctly, might have taken its time. Like, I think he there's the three years, but he filmed that movie and it took like a year or so to actually come out. Yeah. So all good things comes out in 2010, as does. Blue Valentine, which doesn't come out till the end of that year and is almost takes the Oscars by storm that year. I remember that being a very late breaking, like nobody really knows what Blue, what Blue Valentine is and or what it's what its chances are, because there was the whole yeah. thing with the ratings board. Is it going to get an NC-17? Is it too bleak? Is it too? Well, it's absolutely bleak. But then Michelle Williams ends up getting the nomination and Gosling gets left out which always felt a little bit and i know that like you can't compare the two it's because you know the competition is different and you know one getting nominated over the other doesn't mean that that's what that's one of those things about oscar season that kind of bugs me is when people will be like oh i can't believe 
you know, X male co-star got nominated when X female co-star didn't. I can't, you know, she's so much better than him. And it's like, yeah, but they were up against different competition. Like, let's be real about it. But anyway, it did feel like they should have been a package deal. It should have been both or none. But she gets nominated. He does not. And that felt like the big comeback, not necessarily comeback, but like, Ryan Gosling making good on the promise that Half Nelson and Lars and the Real Girl, you know, represented. Not to mention yeah. the promise of like the notebook and and you know, believer and all that. All yeah, that I was gonna say all the way back to the believer. Right. And then twenty eleven happens and Drive premieres at Cannes that year. Yes. Drive premieres at Cannes and People are pretty knocked out by this movie. I know that movie ended up becoming a lot more of a love it or hate it kind of a movie, but not initially. Initially, it was all love. And he was the super fucking cool, unnamed, his character's name is Driver in that movie. Like, this was before we had all realized, you know, Nicholas Winding Refn is kind of that guy we knew he was. Do you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's very much very obsessed with cool, dark, you know, masculine. But Drive or works in a way that is other movies that just Drive like want to have their easily own groove, his best man. movie. Drive is easily yeah. his best movie. Drive is great, and Gosling is great in it. And it came on, you know, like a house of fire. It was easily the movie that like after Can that year. That's the movie where you're just like, I can't fucking wait. And that was also that was Melancholia that year for Cannes. Now I want to look this up. Yes. So, right. Competition features that year at the Cannes Film Festival were The Artist, Drive, Melancholia, uh, Skin I Live In, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, The Tree of Life, which wins Palme d'Or, right? Yes. Yeah. Tree of Life. We need to talk about Kevin. Like, that is a damn interesting also, like, the kid with a bike from the Dardens and, like, a lot of other, you know, really good stuff. But, like, those were sort of the top line most – those were the big headline movies. And that's that's an A-plus can year in terms of emerging from that with a lot of things that people were super fucking psyched to see. Yeah. But Drive was at the top of that list for a lot of people, me especially. And so then Gosling goes from that has this great summer hit with Crazy Stupid Love, becomes, this is when, like, the Ryan Gosling, hey girl memes sort of start happening. This is when Mm -hmm. it all starts coalescing for Ryan Gosling. He becomes an incredibly well-appreciated figure in pop culture. And then what we had all thought, or at least I did, being the cynical sort of, like, you know, dummy that I am, is like, oh, okay, so he had his artsy movie, that everybody loved, but is maybe is maybe going to end up being a little too violent or divisive for people. He had his mainstream hit, which has you know certified him as a movie star and just somebody that everybody loves. So a then, sex symbol, right? So now here comes this middle of the road George Clooney political drama. This is going to be the Ryan Gosling that's going to work, and it's the Ides of March, and it ends up, and we think that it's going to be like. Ryan Gosling is going to become like a Robert Redford type leading man for adult dramas. Right. And it's And it's a bad We should also movie. mention that Place Beyond the Pines is kind of linked into this too because it premiered 
at Toronto that year and didn't come out the next year. But you're it was right. Just like you're right in the sense that Ryan Gosling was everywhere, everywhere. and Ryan Gosling was beloved in everything. Everywhere it was, it was that was the year of Ryan Gosling for sure. Um, Ides of March turns out to be a pretty bad movie. Also a movie that wastes Marissa Tomei. So congratulations to everybody involved in wasting Marissa Tomei this year. We agreed to get married as soon as you won your first case. Meanwhile, 10 years later, my niece, the daughter of my sister, is getting married. My biological clock is ticking like this. And the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. At least we get those Marissa Tomei glasses. <laughs> it's true. It ends up getting him a Golden Globe nomination, but even by the time it got that Golden Globe nomination, and also gets the screenplay nomination at Oscars, right? Which is, like, offensive. I'm sorry. I was just like, <laughs> we had all seen it. We had all resigned ourselves to the fact that, like, the Ides of March didn't happen. So what the fuck are you even trying to kid, like, nominating this for adapted screenplay? Fuck you. So... But that was the one I I was certain. I was like, this is it. Like the math on this checks out, right? Drive is the porridge that's too hot, and Crazy Stupid Love was the porridge that's too cold, and the Ads of March was the porridge that was just right. No. In a way though, the porridge wasn't too cold necessarily for original screenplay for Crazy Stupid Love because okay, you mentioned Ides of March was nominated for Adapted, which yeah. we can mention the Descendants uh, was the winner, also nominated with Hugo. Moneyball, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Original screenplay, which had some surprises or like some unknown quantities where it was like up until the last minute we'd be guessing. Uh, the winner was Midnight in Paris. Why people loved that movie that, as much as they did that year, I will never understand. Overrated. Super overrated. Uh, exactly. Yeah. The Artist, which like there was some question if it would be nominated, but it was the Best Picture frontrunner. It was always going to be nominated. Yes. Um, and then you have A Separation, which is a foreign film, which like as solid as that movie is, it is never like a guarantee that a foreign film will get into a screenplay category. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would have been the deserving winner probably for me. Um, and then you also have Margin Call and Bridesmaids, which were like definitely in the conversation but like we didn't know if they would go for bridesmaids is margin call too small crazy right. stupid love was like in there but it was like yeah but the movie's bad even though they like it and i'll tell you comedies this tend to do well in original screenplay I, I i take what you're saying about a separation and a separation is a phenomenally well-written movie uh that ends up winning best foreign language film and then farhadi ends up winning best foreign language film again a couple years ago for for the salesman right so Farhadi is going to end up getting getting his with Oscar, right? The Os- if the Oscar voters had voted for Bridesmaids to win original screenplay in 2011, they would have bought themselves a decade's worth of get-out-of-jail-free cards when it comes to the Oscars don't appreciate <laughs> comedy enough. Uh, that's That's absolutely fair. But I think, like, the comedy factor of all of it is why A Crazy Stupid Love couldn't get in because there was a lot of other comedies on the outside. I'm thinking of like 50-50. Right. 50-50, which probably probably came pretty close yeah. to getting a nomination there. I'm, what were the Globe nominees that year? They were... Globe nominees? Midnight in Paris, play? Ides of March again, stupid. Uh, Descendants, Descendants Moneyball were like the consistent you know, show and place horses that year. Not to bring it back to Secretariat Horse Racing Talk, but like... The artist was always the front runner, and then it was always like, can the Descendants or Moneyball overtake? And ultimately, no, they couldn't. Um, 
But they were always the ones who were like, they were definitely going to get nominated and whatever. But they were, for the Oscars purposes, they were over in Adapted. And yeah, the category that I feel like in retrospect really should have been much more in play for this movie is Best Actor for Gosling. If they had had some like, I mean, first of all, it's a comedic performance. Like it would have been like the risk to push that performance yes. in this year of three. But okay, I it's the most likable think it's performance. Silly. Well, I mean, he's also great. He's the best performance in the movie. Yeah, it's like it's part of his persona now. So it's like it's a performance that's like stuck around. Yes. in how we define him. But I think lead actor is a little bit of a stretch because I feel like this is just Steve Carell's movie. If you're going to say there's a lead to the movie. That makes sense. Um, but at the same time, like you look at the supporting actor lineup and you could put Ryan Gosling for this movie in there so easily because this lineup sucks. Well, all right. But before we get off of best actor, because best actor was a category that was up in the air till the very end too. We're like, once again, right. it's the artist, the descendants and Moneyball. It's Jean Dujardin, George Clooney, Brad Pitt. We're always locked and loaded for this category. But like Gary Oldman didn't show up until nomination morning. Tinker Sager, it was late. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy was essentially a screenplay at best contender once it opened because everybody went and saw that movie and nobody understood what the fuck was going on. And everybody like respected Oldman and the rest of the cast, but also people forget because Oldman just, you know, having just won the Oscar, everybody assumes that like, oh, Gary Oldman, classic Oscar favorite or whatever. Up until Tinker Taylor, he was not. Up until Tinker Taylor, it was like, what does Gary Oldman have to do to get an Oscar nomination? The assumption was right. that he was such a, you know, unlikable sort of person that he had ticked off enough people that they didn't want to nominate him. After we talked, when we talked about Hannibal, about him, like, trying to get above title billing, I remember there was something about him being difficult on the set of The Contender, and that's why his nomination for The Contender never happened, because there was, like general ill will towards him from that production and from elsewhere in Hollywood. And so, and I think that's one of those things that like people have whispered about like John Cusack throughout the years. And like, why do some of these actors not get nominated? And sometimes it's just like, they're not well liked. And that's what a lot of people had been saying about Oldman. So Oldman showing up on Oscar nomination morning as a shocker of a best actor nomination was huge. It wasn't that shocking though, because like that movie had like momentum building up, like, the real shocker is Damian Bashir. Yeah, but Damian Bashir had the SAG nomination. Yes, but like Tinker Sailor Soldier Spy was like I mean, it was it was a movie that was getting noticed at the time. It was like being sold as an Oscar movie. Yeah. Um and like A Better Life had come out in like May of that year, didn't really register and like that was a movie that is that that nomination came purely from the success of screeners and Q and A's. Yeah. And I mean, I think in general, both of those nominations were surprising and like we were kind of thankful for it at the time because the other option really was DiCaprio and J Edgar and nobody was excited about that nomination happening. So I think there was definitely room to maneuver in best actor, but your point is well taken about supporting actor in that Christopher Plummer ran the table on that category all season and nobody really ever questioned whether that was going to happen. This was also the category that everybody assumed that Albert Brooks was going to show up in for Drive, but like that the buzz for that movie died on the vine. Like Oscar, you know, the Oscar demographic, especially the Oscar demographic of 2011 before, you know, 
the infusion of new young hip Oscar voters um, was not having drive whatsoever. So you ended up with Kenneth Branagh for my week with Marilyn, which, you know, he was pretty consistent throughout the season as showing up. Jonah Hill for Moneyball, which of the two Jonah Hill surprise nominations, this is the one I don't, I, I hate the least. Max von Sydow for, you talk about a surprise nomination, uh, nomination morning, was showing up Max von Sydow for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which, you know, that movie and, you know, showing up in the best act, in the best picture race, you know, huge shocker. And then Nick Nolte for Warrior, which as I mentioned, I think on the Anywhere But Here episode is one of my least favorite acting nominations of the last 20 years. I think it's so, so bad. I think Christopher Plummer is such a deserving winner for this category that we forget how bad this supporting actor lineup is. Like, kick all of them out but Christopher Plummer. Yeah. And it's like, it truly, like, and maybe some of it why, like, the Globes nominated Ryan Gosling for a lead in this is that his dominance over this entire year like made it be like he's a leading man and they wouldn't put him in like supporting for this movie because he's everywhere, you know? But like it would have I do just, think it's a supporting performance. I think just the and look and feel of it would, would feel wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like because he loomed so large in that movie and especially in the marketing for that movie, I get that like that is, it is a Steve Carell movie, but you look at the way that movie was sold and it was sold on as much Gosling as anybody else. I mean, but Ryan Gosling's in the movie less than probably even Julianne Moore. Yo, like, yeah. The movie like, even fully. forgets about Ryan Gosling. No, it does. Well, it, dro- it drops both of those young characters uh, way sooner than it should. I, I just want to read you my my own personal top five supporting actors that year just to show how incredibly off of consensus you were. Well, I think everybody was because I don't think anybody really liked those central performances. But like I had John Hawks for Martha Marcy May Marlene. I had Tom Hollander for Hannah. Corey Stoll as uh, as Hemingway in Midnight in Paris, one of the few parts of that movie I actually liked. We talked before we started Agreed. recording about the Corey Stoll part. I loved Tom Hiddleston and Alison Pill as uh, F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. And I loved Adrian Brody as Dolly. But, like, the central, it's the central storyline in that movie that is awful and dumb and stupid. And, and see if I can find my supporting actor lineup, though. I will tell you my favorite thing that you mentioned because I know we are both fans of this movie John Hawks in Martha Marcy May Marlene. So good. I also had Albert Brooks in Drive and I had. Joshua Leonard in Higher Ground, which is a movie that nobody, hardly anybody saw, the VR Farmiga movie Higher Ground, that I really loved him in. The Blair Witch Project's own. Yes. Joshua Leonard. Love him. Okay, so I can't find anything, but I will just say, like, yeah, John Hawks. There was a bunch of people. That was like Patton Oswalt in Young Adult was that year. Oh, that would have been on my list. Tom Hardy in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is really, really good. Viggo Mortensen in A Dangerous Method was, had, you know, some buzz around him. So, yeah, a lot going on that year that could have happened. 2011 is a really weird and I think pretty bad Oscar year. And this is, you know, me, I'm not as big of a Moneyball fan as other people were. There's movies in this top ten that people like that I'm not a huge fan of. Moneyball being one, The Tree of Life being another, Hugo being another. 
The Descendants being another. I love, like, War Horse is easily my favorite of this Best Picture category, and I know I bring that up a lot because it tends to... Ooh, buddy. It tends to shock people, and I kind of like <laughs> that it shocks people, but, like, genuinely, Steven Spielberg's War Horse is, e- would easily have gotten my vote of that top nine and wouldn't have felt bad about it in the least. Yeah, this was the year where I was, like... I was safely rooting for Moneyball, like, as my favorite. Yeah. And then, like, my backup was The Tree of Life. And I didn't necessarily feel great about that. Those tended to be the consensus sort of film film people favorites that year, right? Snobs like me. Yeah, yeah. I did find a supporting actor lineup of my own. Let's see it. If you would like to read it, and I know that I am just like eating crow of the words I just said, but I do feel strongly about this, and you are probably going to yell at me about one of them. Uh-huh. Okay, so I had, and maybe I wouldn't stand by this now, but it's interesting. Uh, John Hawks, Martha Marcy May Marlene, Ben Kingsley for Hugo, which I'm shocked still like <laughs> didn't become a thing. Yeah, me too, actually. Um, that would probably be the one that I would lose. Patton Oswalt for Young Adult, Christopher Plummer, and then my one that you're going to yell at me for, Brad Pitt for The Tree of Life. Oh, Chris. I actually think he's Supporting good in that. performance. I think he's good in that movie, and I think Chastain's good in that movie. I just can't deal with that movie. The whole... I, mean, I like the movie. I don't, like, I don't, like, you know, prescribe to the ethos of, like, this crazy masterpiece version of it. I think it's really good. Father... I think the performances are the best part of it in like, in the way that like uh, the, the, the like Terry Malick of it all, like his performances (laughs) since tree of life are like nothing. I think the performances in tree of life give you a lot to like hang on to that really linger. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I don't like yes. it. I also was, didn't I mean, like Melancholia at the time. I've grown to sort of appreciate what Melancholia is doing, but I, Melancholia pissed me off too. I was way off consensus almost all year 2011. Oh, I mean, like when my favorite movies of the year were Young Adult and Margaret for 2011. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty off consensus. Certified copy also it was a great movie. Anyway, 2011 weird year. 2011 weird year. I want to briefly talk about. Um, the Teen Choice Awards with regard to Crazy Stupid Love. Because the Teen Choice Awards were fucking into this movie about a middle-aged couple getting a divorce. (laughs) Strangely so. Again, this is when it comes back to, like, this movie was not known for the story that it actually was about, which was Steve Carell and Julianne Moore and their broken-up marriage. This movie was famous for Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling being in one-third of this movie. It's a Teen Choice winner for choice movie actress comedy, Emma Stone, and it ends up being nominated for five other ones, including you know choice movie actor for Ryan Gosling, uh, best comedy movie, and then they're like little, we're teens, so we're going to be, you know, outrageous whatever choice choice movie hissy fit choice movie hissy fit steve carell like god now i want to see who won choice movie hissy fit choice movie lip lock like just say kiss teens jesus what teens that you know say lip lock right like hello fellow young people yeah exactly that one was won by jennifer lawrence and josh hutcherson which whatever like in uh hunger games catching fire like stop it Everybody's okay. Can I have the winner for Choice Movie Hissy Fit? Um, 
and I, I this is actually pretty it's cool. a good it's Would a like it's a deserving guess? winner it's a deserving no oh, I'm looking okay, at so it right you have now. it up yeah Snow White and the Huntsman Charlie's Theron we all remember that scene from the trailer where she screams and the mirror breaks into the shards of glass like that's on the bull that dialect in that movie is nuts mirror mirror on the wall who is fairest of them all yes it's true god we love charlie wait what was the other one besides lip lock that we were saying oh hissy fit right that was yeah that was hissy and then what was the other one choice chemistry right with uh Choice Chemistry was a nomination for Gosling and Carell together, which is interesting because they do have great chemistry, but like Gosling and Emma Stone also have amazing chemistry. That one was also, that was one by Jennifer Lawrence and Amanda Stenberg for Hunger Games, which is interesting. That's like a fan choice thing where it's like, we're just going to bombard the algorithm. Yes, exactly. Uh, Teen Choice Award. I don't know. Yeah. They that so lip lock was also Jesus nominated Christ. for Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards, and Emma Stone was also nominated for Best Female for Performance. Choice male hottie that year was Ian Somerhalder, which honestly, I think that's an upset over Pattinson, Liam Hemsworth, Justin Bieber, and our friend Ryan Gosling, who again was everywhere. Like, that's an upset choice. That's the like esoteric. Like, even among the vampires in that category, you would think he would have been the second most popular. But you know what? Good for him. Good for him. Good for him. Good, Good for, for the summer holder. What else do we have before we move into IMDb game? Anything else hanging out on your notes, on your notepad? To bring it back to the Creeper Sun, which this movie does quite a bit. Yes, it does. Too much. The movie literally ends with this very strange shot of actor Jonah Bobo, like, staring off into the distance of his parents and walking out of frame with, like, this weird intensity. Yeah, the movie and, like, ends on slow him, right? motion. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And it's like, it cuts to black after he walks out of frame, and it's like, and then he killed someone. Yes. And that's how he became a serial killer. Yeah. This movie, man. Like, you want to really like this movie. Like, I think if this was a better movie, it would have gotten closer to a real, like, Oscar conversation or an original screenplay nomination. It was in that no man's land in terms of Rotten Tomatoes, too, right? Where it was, like, a 78% Rotten Tomato. And it's, like, that's well-reviewed, but not well enough to, like, get you into the the awards conversation on acclaim. Right. You need to be, like, a solid 90 it's also fully wild that Kevin Bacon and Josh Groban are in this movie. Just and, as, like, ancillary men? Yeah, just as, like, douchebags. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we'll ever get a John Carroll Lynch nomination. Like, a, like, like in a J.K. Simmons like kind of a way? Yeah, like, he feels like he's getting closer and playing, like, these character roles in yeah. the right movies. Yeah, like, he's in Private Life this year that I love. He's the one who goes out and gets uh, Molly Shannon her uh, quarter of a pound of, what does she ask for? Wait, shit. I thought it was like half of a quarter of a pound. Right, half of a quarter of a pound of lox or whatever, um, of whitefish, and the daughter wanted a Bialy. First of all, if he's going all the way into the city, like, don't just get a Bialy. Like, get over yourself, older daughter. Um, I will also say, in defense of John Carroll Lynch... Had the Academy gotten their shit together about Zodiac, yes. 
that would not have been a bad nomination, well, even though that movie is not hurting for great supporting I actors. was going to say, that that would have been a tough one to leapfrog both Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. in that cast, who are both top-notch. Easily my favorite Robert Downey Jr. performance of... Absolutely. People, like, everybody credits iron man with the resurgence of robert downey he jr really and i don't think iron man happens before. without zodiac yeah it's a very good point and like kiss kiss bang bang had also done some work like he he had been building up to it for sure i do want to say what is your final button on this movie for as harsh as gosling is towards Corell when he's trying to like whip him into shape he was not wrong about how bad that haircut was oh my god when he when Steve Carell pulls out his Velcro wallet, <laughs> Ryan Gosling's double, double, double yeah, take yeah. is the funniest thing in the movie. He's really, Ryan Gosling is great comedian. That is not a character type I should ever like. And I am so incredibly into that character. Not just, I promise you it's not just because he's hot. Like, I can look at Ryan Gosling whenever I want to. But, like, it's he's... partly because he's right. Because, like, Steve Carell's Cal in this movie pretty much sucks. Yes, and he sucks before the makeover, and he sucks after the makeover, and like he only kind of doesn't suck at the very end of the movie, when he finally realizes what he should have realized the whole time. We should be post-Golden Globe nominations at this point that this episode is airing. Joe, how do you feel like Ryan Gosling's chances are this year for First Man? Oh, I mean... I think it's it's got to be good, right? How deep does that best actor I, pool actually go? I don't think very deep, I think right? It's, and that's why I think he's in a better standing than people are saying. Yeah, just because the movie, movie like, flopped as a commercial think, project does not mean that he's out of this. Like, come on. I think it hurts the movie more than it hurts him. I think I think the fact that it is a it is a troubling sort of side by side compare where like. First Man flopped. Bohemian Rhapsody does so much better than people thought. And so, like, yes, it's easy to see Rami Malek leapfrogging him in these standings the way, you know, that people are assuming he will. And, like, I guess it's it's a tougher category than I initially imagined because Cooper is in, Hawk is in, and if Vice is doing what everybody assumes Vice is doing, like, Bale has all the ingredients, right? We're, like, playing right. a real person Heavy, you know, both makeup and weight gain. Like, it's all the tricks of the trade, right? I also think we just do a better job these days than we did a decade ago of appreciating, finger quotes, quieter performances from Ryan Gosling. Even if it doesn't necessarily mean, like... Yeah. I feel like there's a building narrative towards, like... And like he's he, not going to win an Oscar for La La Land. He's going to win an Oscar yeah. for like a more nuanced character work, like he does in First. And time. he's going to at least be in the conversation because he's going to get a Globe nomination because it's going to be Cooper, Hawk, Malik, Gosling, and then either like Defoe or Redford or or you know Jackman. And I mean, something as like we that. pointed out, like. A, Ryan Gosling is a much more established name now. Like in yeah. these years where it feels like there's a lot of people that are like have the same odds, it helps to be a more recognizable name. Oh, so I saw. So I think his chances are better than. I saw Green know. Book last night, by the way, speaking of best actor contenders. Boy. I am at a loss as to how to appreciate the Vigo Mortensen character because he is an utter cartoon from beginning to end in this movie. Like he's so 
it's like you've seen the clip where he eats the folds the pizza in half, right? And eats the pizza. Yes. That is him. That's his character. <laughs> like that is the best encapsulation of that character. My friend and I watched it last night and we laughed our asses off just like at not with the movie, I'm assuming well, based on sort how you're of, describing sort it. Sort of with the movie for his character because the the movie is like you would think it was ridiculous that it's being pushed as a comedy for the Globes, but like it is kind of conceived as a comedy, which is part of its problem. But that's where the Vigo Mortensen character and where that performance sort of like lives and resides and it works. I will tell you who's legitimately great in this movie is Mahershala Ali. He is. I've also heard that about Linda Cardellini too. She um, is. She's, she, she's not in it a whole lot, but like, she's wonderful. But like Mahershala Ali, when people started floating the idea that he could win supporting actor again, I was like, that is stupid. Stop saying that. I no longer feel that way. I feel like if he won again for this movie, it would be fully deserved. He's great. As of, as of recording, I have not seen this movie yet. I am bracing to have to see it. It just looks gross to me um, for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um it's, it's you're not wrong. I will I will see it probably at the last minute that I will have to or not have. It's to. more watchable than I was giving it credit for, but like, you know, that's probably it. That and the the Mahershala factor are what, yeah, is to recommend it. I don't want to root against Mahershala Ali, but this movie is not something I want to sit through. Yeah, I feel that. Okay, IMDb game. IMDb game. For our new listeners, the IMDb game is a game we play every week at the end of our episodes to challenge each other with character actors, famous people, actors essentially, um, with the four titles that IMDb says that that performer is most known for. You'll even see it under known for on their IMDb page. Indeed. Caveats being, we will mention if there is a television program or if there is voiceover work. Um, just to like help steer that along. If we get two guesses wrong, we get the years. After that, it starts being kind of a free-for-all. Hint, Brigade comes out to play, yes. Yes, we avoid Harry Potter and the Marvel Cinematic Universe because that is boring. Yes. Unless they're like the people that you forget are in Marvel Cinematic Universe movies or like... What was the movie that we had... What was the person we had where I was fully shocked that their Marvel movie wasn't on there? Hmm... Ruffalo? I think it was Ruffalo? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, I have one for you. Joe? Yes. Who, uh, explain to our listeners who the person is that you are challenging. So we mentioned briefly that Dan Fogelman wrote Fred Claus, the unexpectedly star-studded movie about Santa Claus's dumb brother. One of the stars, I believe, was the love interest for Fred Claus in this movie, played by a woman who I hope is an Oscar nominee this year. She's also a former Oscar winner, Rachel Weiss. So, Chris. We love Rachel. We do love Rachel Weiss. She is, honestly, she gave two Oscar nomination-worthy performances this year in Disobedience and The Favorite. Let's see that happen. So, I still have yet to see The Favorite as of recording, unfortunately. She's so good. It's my torture. It is. I'm sure I'm going to love her in the movie. Yes. Um, okay. Miss Rachel was in The Lobster. Yep. That's one. Oz the Great and Powerful. No. Interesting guess. Ugh. 
Very good that that movie is not there. Yes. Perhaps that was a stupid guess because people forgot that that movie exists, yeah. um, as they should. Um, had to go for the big one. Oh, um, uh, hmm. I'm tempted to guess one of the sequels, but I will say The Mummy. Yes, The Mummy, the very first one. Hmm. And just to, like, throw it out there, even though it could be wrong, because this is not always the best path for this game, I will guess her Oscar win, The Constant Gardener. Yes. Okay, good. Um, so three so correct have... with only one wrong. Boy. Um, she's in a lot. Not a lot of things that I feel like fall prey to the IMDb algorithm. I am like the Sasha Bell of this game. I think I have cracked the code. <laughs> Um, yeah, you really do feel like you've got the you've got it on lock. Yeah, I try to like approach it through like what overall it feels like they are like how this algorithm works. It's like a strange beast. Um, the fountain. No, not the fountain. All right, so now you're going mm. to get a year. The year for your missing movie is two thousand five. So it's the same year as her Oscar win. Yep. I'm pretty sure it was early in the year. Constant Gardener was a, was an autumn movie. This one, I want to say, was like a February or March movie. Is it Constantine? It is Constantine. Constantine. Weird movie. Like that movie. Underrated movie, Constantine. Really, really good, honestly. It's good Tilda Swinton. In good that Tilda movie, Swinton yeah. in that movie. Good costumes in that movie. Wait, now I want to see who did costumes in Constantine. I feel like that was also one of those movies where, from the trailer, it was like the visual effects in this movie are going to be awesome, and then you watch the movie and they're bad. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're fine. I think they're fine. Costumes by Louise Frogley. Good for you, Louise Frogley. We like you, Louise. Yes. Okay, so my IMDb challenge for you. We talked a lot about Marissa Tomei and this character and how, like, Marissa Tomei's career kind of sucks. The one that I kind of defended for what she does for this performer is the wrestler oh, no. starring oh, no. Mickey Rourke. I hate you. Oh, <laughs> challenge I hate is you. Mickey Rourke. I hate you so much. Um, fucking Mickey Rourke. All right, the wrestler. The wrestler. Okay, thank God. Uh, Barfly? No. Fuck. Oh, this is going to be a bloodbath. Uh, the Pope of Greenwich Village? Absolutely not. No. All right, give me years. So you have two wrong guesses. I'm going to give you years. You have 2005, 2010, 1987. Sure. And the 1987 one isn't Barfly. It is not. Fuck. What are the other two years? 2005, 2010. Great. Is 2010 Iron Man 2? Yes, it is. Okay. Which I was comfortable going into the Marvel Cinematic Universe for that because I think people forget about it because he is what? Terrible villain. Yeah. I hate you so much. Um... Oh, what's that stupid one he made uh, in the 80s with... I genuinely don't think his IMDb game is very difficult. Really? 
You are overthinking this. What the fuck? What? What's? T- what? <sighs> okay, let, let I'll help you with the 1987 one, um, because it's like 80s Mickey Rourke blurs together. This one was like semi-controversial. Oh, is this it nine had, and a half like, weeks? No, um, but it did have other sex stuff, much more weird. Yeah. Like, it kind of had a recent resurgence. I think either it was, like, Shout Factory released it or there was, like, a director's cut. Was this the one with, like, Lisa Bonet or whatever? Yes. Do you know the title? Is it Angel Heart? Yes, it is. Um, And then, seriously, you are going to be very mad at yourself for not guessing 2005. This, like, the wrestler was treated as, like, the Mickey Rourke comeback, but this really was the one that kicked off the Mickey Rourke comeback that lasted for maybe just those two movies. The music um, video for Enrique Iglesias' Hero? Yes, that totally made it onto IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> what if it did? Uh, what if it did? Everything. That would be great. Is it Once um, Upon a Time in Mexico? No. He's in that. He's in that. It's the same director. Oh, it's Sin City. It is Sin City. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess you can kind of forget that it's Mickey Rourke because he has like heavy makeup on. Like we always think of like also dirty, a billion gross, people are in that movie Mickey that are Rourke. bigger stars than Mickey Rourke. Like, I know he gives the like good performance got, in that movie, but there still. was a lot of press around Mickey Rourke being in that movie. Yeah, yeah. in that role. All right, and I like in a lot of ways, I think he has the biggest role. Truth too, be told, all right, let's just let the record show that I gave you flawless queen and gay fave Rachel Vice. And you gave me hamburger-faced Mickey Rourke. I mean, your other option... What other option did I have for you? I had something else. And it was, like, even more difficult, but it was a lady. So, like, I don't know. I genuinely looked at Mickey Rourke in, like, those four movies. Like, those would have been my first four guesses. Well, maybe nine and a half weeks. But... Fine. Fine. All right. That's it. No more. That is Crazy Stupid Love. That's Crazy Stupid Love. It is. That is our episode. Aptly titled. On Crazy Stupid Love. It is both crazy, but mostly stupid. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris V File. That's F E I L. Um, I am also on Letterboxd under the same name or the same username, I should say. And we also have our running This Had Oscar Buzz list on there where you can find IMDb game stats and direct links to our episodes. I also write regularly at thefilmexperience.net. You can find me there. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed is spelled R E I D. I am also on Letterboxd under the same name. I, you know what? I'm just going to stop promising you guys that I'm going to make an effort to catch up on updating my letterbox. It'll happen when it happens. It takes some time to update. We my are letterboxed. at end of the year. Lots like, to do. Superlatives. Lots to do. Time yes. of this episode. But you this will is find this is the time of year that I most need my letterbox because it's when I'm trying to make lists and I'm trying to remember everything that I've seen and what I thought of it. So exactly. we'll see. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility, so please give us the equivalent of a topless photo taken with a digital camera and drop us a rave review if you haven't already. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz.
like you're photoshopped. 